Romans chapter 15, I'll begin reading with verse number 1. We then that are strong, strong in faith, strong in the service of the Lord, strong in our opinions of ourselves. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, which is everybody else but us, of course. Not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me, referring to the Savior. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, like Abraham, for example, and that the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to, confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again, he saith, rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, praise him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of of the Holy Ghost. Okay, verse number four gives us an oft-quoted verse. We use it all the time. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The basic meaning is obvious. The scriptures, and particularly in that day and time, the Old Testament scriptures were written and recorded to help us in our New Testament faith and service to God. In that paragraph, Paul says, let's do what we can do to encourage and help other people, including our neighbors, the unsaved. Despite the plain declaration of verse number four, generally speaking, usually it's not examined within the context. What is the context? We've read the entire paragraph here. Paul says, as prophesied, Christ was initially the minister of the gospel to the Jews. But let's not forget that it, the evangelism of the heathen is also prophesied in the Old Testament. 
that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Verse number 9. And again, Isaiah, or Isaiah, saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, that is, the son of Jesse, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually. And he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Verse number 12. That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now, in what sort of things... Should the Christian have hope? First and foremost, there is the glorious hope of the return of Christ and the the ultimate effects of our salvation. But on a, a, a more common plane, shall we say, a little more personal and timely, we can have hope in a lot of different things, even things given to us from the Word of God, including in the context of this paragraph, the ministry that we might have with Jews and Gentiles. We can even have hope that our service for the Lord might be blessed by the Holy Spirit. In this section of our study, which may be one lesson, maybe two, I don't expect any more than that. What I would like to do is provide Old Testament illustrations to what we have already said about God's angelic evangelism. I'm not going to drag this on very far, but we could. There are a great number of illustrations, pictures if you like, types if you want to use that word, in the Old Testament, which illustrate what we could do and should be doing for the glory of the Lord. So I'd just like to show you a couple of Old Testament examples that illustrate New Testament personal evangelists. I admit that we do not find the same kind of soul winner in the Old Testament that we see in the New Testament. That's, that's out there. That's where we begin. But we do find that some of the characteristics that we've already mentioned were written aforetime for our learning. And I remind you that the words, he that winneth souls come to us from the Old Testament. He that winneth souls is wise. Proverbs chapter 11, I believe it is. Together, these scriptures, whatsoever things were written aforetime, and he that winneth souls is wise, together they give us a little incentive to look to the Old Testament for lessons that we might learn about us and our responsibility. For our lesson this morning, I'm not so much concerned about the results that the soul winner is uh, producing. I'm not uh, concerned about uh, souls themselves. But rather, I'd like to focus on the faithfulness of these Christians or servants of God. Their faithfulness in carrying out the work of the Lord. And even though we don't have examples of face-to-face evangelism, 
the principles which I hope to point out apply whether we are preaching to a congregation of a thousand people or we're whispering into the ear of a friend on his deathbed. Same principles apply. For example, what can we learn from Isaiah? He's referred to here in Romans. What can we learn from Isaiah? I've often said, repeating what others have said, and I suppose it might be debatable to some degree, I've often said that Isaiah is the most evangelical of the Old Testament prophets. And for a lot of people, it shouldn't be this way, but for a lot of people, the book of Isaiah begins in chapter 6. That is where Isaiah stands in the presence of God, and that is where his commission is, uh, shall we say, reiterated. Like Matthew 28. The disciples have been serving the Lord and being evangelists for three years, and then as the Lord is leaving, he reiterates their responsibility. Isaiah tells us, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? We've already looked at some of this, so I'm just going to touch on it briefly. Then said I, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Please turn to Isaiah. Chapter 1. When the Lord said to Isaiah, Go, isn't that reminiscent of go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Can't we tie those things together? Like Moses at the burning bush and Elijah at Mount Sinai, to be the best servants, the best soul winners we can be, we need to look into the eye of God, so to speak, and hear his voice. As I said in earlier lessons, we need to live in God's throne room and humbly kneel before the throne of grace to experience and enjoy and use the blessing of God. I'll return to Isaiah 6 in a minute, but we need to begin with chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. For the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. I know I skipped a couple verses there, but you can follow. From the outset of the book, we see this man serving as one of God's prophets. He's already a prophet of the Lord. You might say that he is a picture of an evangelist. He is an evangelist. The person God is most likely to use in his service. The one who is going to join the Lord there in chapter 6. Is someone who is already serving the Lord. Make it a general rule. That's the way it is. It's true whether we're talking about uh, someone who is going to the mission field. That. Newly saved person raises his hand and says, I'll go to the Philippines as a missionary. You just better sit back a while and go from there. Whether we're talking about someone who's going to become a pastor of a local church or even uh, a personal evangelist, God can take the, the man whose eyesight has been 
corrected Acts early chapters. And he can be a witness for the Lord. All I know for sure is I couldn't see, but now I can, and it was all because of Jesus. Even the Lord can use a person like that. Generally speaking, he takes a three-year disciple to set him before the crowd at Pentecost. Or he takes a Philip who is a deacon in the church in Jerusalem before he sends him off into the desert to evangelize strangers there. My point is, if you'd like to be used as a soul winner, and I wish that was true of all God's saints, if you wish to be used for the Lord, find something that you can do and do it. Give out tracts. Invite people to church. If you can't, uh, you're not bold enough to speak to them about Christ, then say, come with me to the house of God this Sunday morning. Befriend a neighbor who's lonely. Get involved in the work of the Lord somehow. And then the Lord, at his convenience, can take us and use us since we're already serving him, and he can open doors for us. We don't need to take a a battering ram and break down doors for ourselves. Let the Lord do that for us. But the point is, Isaiah was already serving the Lord before he received this extra special commission. Isaiah also reminds us that our message must include bad news along with the good news. The gospel. Before people will come to Christ... They must be taught that they need Christ. This is, as Isaiah says, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. If I didn't know better, I would think I was reading Romans chapter 3. I mean, the number of points, etc., etc. There is none righteous, no, not one. It's not just the preacher behind the lectern who must tell people that they are sinners. So must the personal evangelist. He has to do this. We must carefully blend both condemnation and invitation together as we present salvation to people in an inoffensive way we can do that talking about ourselves I don't recommend although it's appropriate from time to time I don't recommend that we uh, have a list of our most terrible sins and we tell everybody I did this and I did this and so on and so forth that can happen sometimes but People need to know that I was a sinner. I was going down this terrible road. I was headed toward disaster and the lake of fire, but the Lord rescued me. And we can go from there to point out others are going down this same road. Are you going down that road? You need the Savior. Not only did Isaiah condemn, but he also gave... God's invitation to those folk. Come now and let us reason together. This is still in chapter 1. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet or as black as coal, 
They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. You need to make a decision here. You need the Savior. You're lost. And the Savior says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I could point to this condemnation and invitation uh, in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. This is, this is Isaiah's ministry all throughout this long book. We can also refer to this condemnation socially, which might ease the pain a little bit. Uh, our country's falling apart. And the reason is that Americans have turned their back on the God which made this country great a couple of centuries ago. Similarly, people's personal lives are in shambles with addictions, with infidelities, with divorce, with crime. For the same reason, you need the Savior, that sort of thing. In earlier lessons, we touched on chapter 6, so I won't spend a lot of time there, as I said. Basically, we see the man of God coming into the presence of Jehovah. He admits to his unworthiness. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a society of unclean lips. But as he does, the Lord shows his forgiveness by cleansing Isaiah and sanctifying him. The chapter tells us there's a great work to be done. And Isaiah surrendered as a sanctified servant of the Lord, willing as a volunteer to do what the Lord commanded. Why is it that we don't have more young men surrendering to the ministry today? Why don't more of God's saints willingly become soul winners? It's not because John R. Rice and Jack Hiles have passed from the scene and there's no one taking their place demanding that every Christian ought to lead ten souls to Christ this week. That's not the reason. The reason is because we don't have godly preachers bringing people with them into the presence of the Holy God. And... I include myself in that number. It would be an interesting study to go through the book of Isaiah looking at uh, more aspects of Isaiah's evangelistic ministry. We'd find that in chapter 7, like Philip, Isaiah was directed to meet a certain individual and give to him the message of God. Parallels Philip. We also see in that chapter that even Isaiah, way back in the Old Testament, brought Christ into the conversation. He's the solution. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The man addicted to drugs that woman considering suicide, they don't need a lesson in psychology. They don't need to hear that there's a better kingdom coming. 
They don't need a pep talk. They need God with us. Emmanuel. They need a Savior who is Christ the King. They need the Lamb of God of whom Isaiah speaks in chapters 52 and 53. Every once in a while, under the blessing of the Lord, there will be a convert. As I say, there's much that we can say about Isaiah, but uh, we won't proceed any farther. Sometimes, God will prepare that convert, that soul, even before meeting with the evangelist. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, the Lord was preparing his heart, and then the evangelist showed up. Consider Hezekiah, the king of Israel, whom the Lord uh, softened through personal and national disasters. He was ready. And then the word of God was presented to him. He was ready for the word of God. After God had providentially prepared him, then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Another example. The book of Isaiah concludes on a very positive note. It ends with discussion on the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah, in his ancestry for the modern soul winner, says, Sir, like me, you are a sinner in the sight of God, and you need the blessing of the Lord. The Lord has sent his only begotten son to hit your sins head on, so to speak, dying on the cross. If you will repent before God, and that was part of Isaiah's message, if you will repent before the Lord and trust in Christ, the one who died on Calvary, God has promised to forgive your sins and to take you to the new heavens, the new earth. Take you to heaven. We have an example of the soul winner in Isaiah. Another of our ancestors in this work is Joshua, the son of Nun. Isn't that an interesting name? Of course, it didn't mean anything like it does today, back in his day. But I will say in just a minute, he was a nobody. He was a son of a nobody, none. We could use Joshua as an illustration of the modern soul winner uh, in several different ways, and I'm not going to give all of them to you so I didn't spend enough time meditating on it. For example, there is his name, Joshua, which is the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus, Amen. Savior, or Jehovah saves. We might make the comparison between Christ and the Christian. Ideally, the Christian should be the Lord's ambassador, the Lord's representative, wearing Christ before the multitude. I am Christ. Well, not exactly. I am representing Christ. I am the Christian. Joshua is Jesus. In the Old Testament. Amen. 
And Joshua was, if I can put it this way, a Christian. He was a Christian in other ways, not just in name only. He was one of the redeemed. The blood of the Lamb protected him from the death angel in uh, Egypt. He knew what it was to be under condemnation. He knew what it was to fear the flight of the death angel. He's been in your shoes. He was near death. And the Lord was gracious to him. He was close to death before the application of the blood of the Savior. We take note that Joshua was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was not a Levite. He had no access into uh, the Holy of Holies, at least as far as the flesh is concerned. He was a member of the tribe of Ephraim. He was one of the ordinary members of Israel. There was nothing special about him as far as his lineage and his flesh uh, were concerned. He was a soldier among many soldiers. He was a part of Israel's militia. And the truth was, everyone between the age of uh, 30 and 60, I believe it was, every man was a member of that militia. He was just one of the crowd. The first time we read his name in the Word of God, Moses was asking this military man to lead an army against the Amalekites. The point is, he was an ordinary, extraordinary man. I think I've put those words together before. He was one with all the other men of Israel. If only ordained preachers were permitted by God to lead souls to Christ, there would be very few Christians in this world and the number would be shrinking exponentially with every generation. This ministry of leading people to the Savior is not, should not be confined to those who uh, carry the title reverend. It belongs to everybody. The second time we read the name Joshua, he was working as Moses' minister hiking to the top of Mount Sinai. Moses recognized in this man, this man who is half his age, remember Moses is 80 at this time, Joshua is 40 or less, probably. He recognized, Moses recognizes something special in this man and says, join me. We'll get to that specialness in, in just a minute. Moses took this man up into the presence of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days before the Lord actually spoke. Joshua was there in the cloud. He was in that glory. No, it wasn't quite the same as it will be with Moses when the six days expire. But 
Joshua is up there. Everybody else is down there at the foot of the mountain, getting into trouble. Joshua is up there with the Lord. So Joshua had his audience with the king of kings in much the same way as Isaiah did in chapter 6 or as Moses did at the uh, uh, burning bush or as the, the apostles did for three and a half years during Jesus' ministry. We see an example of this ministry. But we are reminded through this man that a single visit with God, just a few minutes in front of the burning bush, is not sufficient. It won't take us through 40 years of life with ups and downs and whatnot. Perhaps more importantly than Sinai, Moses met the Lord after crossing the Jordan River, gathering the, uh, the people together at the uh, foot of the city of Jericho. While Joshua was there, he met the Lord again. Turn to Joshua 5. I think it's verse number 1, but let me check. Joshua chapter 5. And it came to pass what verse are we looking at? Verse 8. No, not verse 8. How about verse 13? There are three it came to passes in there. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes, this was in the evening, and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And this man I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The man said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship as he should have. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, Again, it sounds like the burning bush, doesn't it? For the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua became a witness of the things he witnessed. He spoke of the things that he knew. He, 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 he saw the Shekinah glory of God there at the top of Mount Sinai. And now he's standing before the Savior, whether he recognizes him the same way that we would, is another matter, but he could speak of his fellowship with God. He could speak of the Lord because they knew each other. That's what the Christian witness does. That's what he should be able to do. 
The Lord has saved my soul. I've, I've looked at the, the wounds in his hand. I, I have uh, experienced the crucifixion in a sense. Let me share with you what I know about my Savior. That's what a witness does. What was it in Joshua which set him apart? What was it that Moses recognized in him? Can't we summarize his uniqueness with faith and faithfulness? We'll give you a couple of examples of that in a minute. Admittedly, there were ups and downs in Joshua's life, which is a benefit to all of us because our lives are up and down and up and down. At times, Joshua seems to be absolutely fearless when he goes into battle against the Amalekites, we can uh, compare that to uh, standing up here before a congregation of sinners protected by this heavy piece of lumber here from all of your, your stares and glares. It's easy to preach this way, but it's something else to be two feet away from someone and explaining to that person they're a sinner and they need the Savior. As God told Moses that Joshua would succeed him in the leadership of Israel, and after he had witnessed for nearly 40 years what Israel was doing to Moses individually, nationally and so on, uh, Joshua wasn't so sure he wanted Moses' job. I don't think I'm up for this. I don't want that job. He didn't actually get Moses' job, but uh, uh, there were some parts of it he did. As I say, it's easy to preach to a nearly faceless crowd, but more difficult to speak face-to-face with people who are angry with you. And the Lord himself... Moses encouraged Joshua when he was giving the man his commission. In Deuteronomy 31 and verse 23, Moses said, Be strong! Be of good courage! There are times when Joshua shows a great deal of courage and there are times when he needs to hear the words, Come on, you can do it. The Lord will bless you. Be strong, courageous. And the Lord himself says the same thing in Joshua chapter 1. Are you still in Joshua there? Joshua chapter 1, verse 6. The Lord says, Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Please please notice the context. I'm going to come back to it. Only be strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do all according to all the law which my Moses which my which Moses my servant commanded thee turn not from it to the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth but thou shalt meditate therein day and night 
that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. I can hear some good preacher taking this scripture and using it to outline uh, the, the ministry of the, the evangelist. He might say that our commission is to lead individual souls into the promised land. Go for it. Dividing the Lord's inheritance unto them. He wouldn't tell them that it was God's sovereign and eternal choice to give them salvation, but he would know that is true, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. That preacher might point out that God has commanded us to the work. And what is the last thing God says in verse number 9? For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Again, sounds like Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. Amen. The only thing Jesus didn't say to the apostles was, only be strong and very courageous. Why was Joshua strong on one occasion and apparently timid on another? You might ask the same question about me <laughs> or any one of us. Why is personal evangelism so difficult? Joshua was strong when his faith was working. He was faithful when his faith was strong. He was brave against the Amalekites because Moses was standing on a hill over there with his arms outstretched with Aaron, was it Aaron and her? A couple of guys holding his hands up there, uh, helping him to pray, so to speak. Forty years earlier, Joshua was one of the men that represented Israel in reconnoitering the promised land. When ten of the spies issued their bad report and expressed fears of defeat and disaster, there was uh, Joshua and Caleb speaking in faith to the rest of the nation. God can do it. Let's just follow the Lord into the land. They could very easily see that God is greater than the giants of apostasy and heathenism in the people to whom we're witnessing. Joshua's witness was strong when he was living in faith and in dependence upon the Lord. But he, like everyone else, fell apart when he looked to the flesh for his strength. Moses may have recognized Joshua's faithfulness, but the Lord knew of something else. Numbers 27, 18. The Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thine hand upon him, and set him aside as your future replacement. 
The key to Joshua's service was his faith in the Lord. And out of that faith, there was the... Out of that faith, that's not quite right. But there was also involved the presence of the Spirit of God. He was filled with the Lord. The key to Joshua's service was that the Lord empowered him. Every child of God is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But not every child of God is filled with the Spirit. Surrendered and empowered. What so many Christians lack is that filling of the Spirit. And this is something that we need to seek from God every day of our lives. So that when the Lord says, get down into the Gaza desert, I've got somebody you to, for you to speak to, we're ready to do it. You might not be willing to call Joshua a soul winner, and I won't argue with you about that. But I will point out that he was a part of God's plan to save the heathen named Rahab. Rahab was a member of a condemned community. Shall we say a condemned race? She was a sinner. Every man, woman, and child in that community eventually died. Just like all the rest of humanity will die before God. But the Lord was gracious toward this one wretched, immoral woman. And in fact, it is said, and I quote, I should have written the scripture down. Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household. If in our lives we have the privilege of saving one Rahab, we have done a very great thing, an important thing. What did Joshua possess and what lessons might he share with us in our soul winning uh, series? He was a man of God, bearing the name of his Savior. He was filled with the Spirit. He was a man of faith. He was faithful to his God-given responsibilities. Personally, he took the Word of God and made it his daily meditation that he might observe to do all that was written therein. Chapter 1, verse number 8. And despite his natural timidity and fear, he took courage in the Lord and did the work he was commanded to do. Joshua and Isaiah can be used as illustrations of the New Testament soul winner. Pray that I'll know whether or not to pursue this line of thought next week. Lord bless you.